the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I'm joined now by Senator Sass. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, Hugh. Uh, What is your assessment of the president's intention and his culpability for the insurrectionists and the rioters breaking into the Capitol and, and murdering a Capitol policeman? Well, the people's capital, which is obviously the greatest symbol around the world of, of freedom and liberty and self-government. Uh, there's polling all over the world that the dome of the capital is literally the most identifiable symbol of freedom. And it was ransacked by a mob that was incited by the president of the United States um, while blood was actually being shed in the Capitol, and I was in the Senate chamber, and the Secret Service was trying to rush the vice president uh, to safety. At those exact moments, the president is rage-tweeting against the vice president. Why? Because Mike, because Vice President Pence had the audacity to fulfill his oath of office to the Constitution. It's a big deal. Lies have consequences. Now, I'm curious about the word incite. It has a legal meaning. I know you're not a lawyer, but incite means to act with the purposeful intention to cause. That's why I asked you the question I did. Do you think he intended the mob to break into the Congress? Uh, You are right that I uh, am not a lawyer, so there's probably 15 sub-definitions of incite. But the president had a rally hours before this happened where he is telling them to go to the Capitol and to go wild. This is a part of a pattern. Um, the guy is addicted to division. This, this is a deep brokenness in his soul. You and I have talked about it multiple times. Donald Trump is a guy who, who hurts, and I, I hurt for him at an anthropological and a human level, um, but at a level of his oath of office to the Constitution, the duty of the president of the United States is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And the president is addicted to social media and to television and to division. And he's been lying to the American people for eight straight weeks and planned it long before. No matter what was happening in any state, he was going to say the election was being stolen and the people needed to rise up. So, so Senator, morning, a- he said repeatedly to go wild when you get to the Capitol. They went to the Capitol and some went, well, let's be clear here, there are 30,000 people here. The vast majority of them are honorable, freedom-loving people, the vast majority of them, but not all of them. Do you, I, I got to land the plane though, Senator, do you think he intended for the riot and the occupation, the insurrection to happen? I think Donald Trump wanted there to be massive division, and he was telling people there was a path by which he was going to stay in office after January 20th. That was never true. And he wanted chaos on television. I don't have any idea what was in his heart about what he wanted to happen once they were in the Capitol. But he wanted there to be chaos. And I'm sure you've also had conversations with other senior White House officials, as I have. I have. As this was unfolding on television, Donald Trump was walking around the White House confused about why other people on his team weren't as excited as he was as you had rioters pushing against Capitol Police trying to get into the building. That's it. was happening. He was delighted. Uh, that said, should he be impeached and removed? 
I think that there are a lot of questions that we need to get to the bottom of about why the National Guard was not deployed. Why was it delayed? So uh, that's what I've been working on last night and this morning. I want to understand more about why the National Guard wasn't deployed when there had been clear calls for it and then why that delay happened. So there, there are more things that I need to understand before I get to a conclusory judgment about that. But I think that the question of was the president derelict in his duty, that's not an open question. He was. Now, you know that the history of the Roman Revolution from 60 B.C. to Augustus Caesar is a uh, progressive cycle of iterations away from the norm. A rushed impeachment would be yet another iteration away from the norm. Would that not itself be terribly damaging? So I think you raise a really good point, and it's why I think there's a distinction between the objective question of was the president derelict and the um, prudential judgment of what is the best way to take America forward. Donald Trump's not going to be in office uh, in 13, 14 days, whatever the, the right count is. I don't care much, again, at a, at a human level. Um, you know, I've built a relationship with the president as we had to work together over the last four years, and, and I'm, I'm sad for much of who Donald Trump is. Um, it, but I don't really care at the level of American constitutional health where Donald Trump is in 2023. I do care a lot about where the American people are. And there are many, many, many great Americans who voted for Donald Trump because they didn't like the alternatives. They didn't like Hillary Clinton in 2016. They didn't like um, the failure of so many, not all, but so many in the Democratic Party to push back against AOC's agenda to drive the Democratic Party further to the left. So I understand, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I understand why lots of people did in my state and across the country. And what I want us to be doing is moving forward with 85, 90, and 95 percent of the people wanting to re reaffirm a, a constitutional system of checks and balances, where you don't have the Article Two leader trying to incite action against the Article One branch and the People's House, and so I am with you that the prudential questions about what's good for the American people in 2023 and 2033 those should be the most important questions right now. Do you want members of the cabinet to resign in protest, and if so, who? Um, I, I would say that I've had conversations for four years straight with members of the cabinet who see behavior that they regard as, as not just morally disgusting, though that, um, but just totally confusing about an adult who's supposed to be shepherding this great gift that we've inherited as the constitutional system, that we pass it on to our kids. And many people have asked my advice over three and a half years about whether or not they should stay or resign. Typically, my advice has been to stay, that the administration has done many, many wonderful things. You and I have talked about it. Some of the things that Mike Pompeo has been doing over the course of the last couple of years, really exceptionally good work. And so there, there are a number of members of the cabinet who've done good work at the level of policy implementation. Um, and there have been a lot of people in the senior White House staff and in the cabinet who've also done very good work in restraining some moments when Donald Trump was inclined to do some really crazy stuff. Um, and so in general, I've urged people to stay um, and to try to do the best they can. You're not serving the man. You're serving the American people by serving that office. Um, right now, I have a couple of other conversations going, so I, I don't want to discuss those in this context. But in general, my advice has been to people to stay and serve the American people uh, through their callings and in that office. Again, when, when you work, uh, when you take an oath of office as a cabinet official, you're taking the oath not to a man. Uh, you know, the, the crap we saw at the Capitol where a United States flag at one point came down and, and a, a Trump flag went up instead, that's not what people are taking an oath to. They're taking an oath to the flag of the United States that people uh, for 
240 years have bled and died to protect. And when they take that oath and serve in the Article II branch, um, they're doing it under the authority of, of the person who's the chief executive, the presider, which is what the word, as you know, president is supposed to mean. It's not supposed to be a kingly title. Um, they're not doing it to a man. They're doing it to the American people in the office. And so in general, I think the right choice uh, is for people to, to serve stability. So that that's the cabinet. There are three key staff members, uh, the chief of staff, the White House counsel and the national security advisor. Do you want those three to stay and serve through the transition? I think all three of those uh uh, I can't remember if you said White House counsel or not, but I would have your list. Okay. I, I think all of those, uh, w- w- American people would be best served by them staying in their offices. Uh, Rona McDaniel is likely to be elected unopposed to a third term of the RNC today. She's a Trump selection. Uh, do they need a new chair? Tommy Hicks, by the way, is co-chair running for re-election, but he has challengers. What is your advice to the Republican National Committee about both of those offices? Uh, the Republican National Committee is not a healthy organization. Um, as you as you know, um, in the 2016 campaign, I campaigned for almost everybody uh, not named Donald Trump, and it became pretty clear that the RNC as a structure was, uh, you know, akin to a fueled up 747 sitting on a runway um, that could be hijacked by almost anybody uh, with a big brand. And uh, that's what happened. And I've made it pretty clear that I think it's pretty dangerous uh, for the party of Lincoln and Reagan um, to become a party of, you know, a lot of QAnon nonsense and a lot of TV obsession and a lot of narcissistic trolling. Um, Our party needs to be bigger than one personality. And I hope that the Republican National Committee is thinking hard about how we serve our kids um, by trying to put forward an argument that can speak to 70 percent and, frankly, that could speak to 90 percent of America. And right now we don't do that. I mean, you, so do you want you, a clean sweep? Georgia. Do you want a clean sweep of the RNC? You know, the RNC doesn't ask my advice on how to govern the place. Uh, there, there is a lot of um, yes man and yes womanism inside the, the RNC. It's, it's not a place that's primarily about ideas right now. Um, it's been a cult of personality for some time, and they don't, they don't ask my advice. Um, so I'm not going to comment on a specific election there, but I, I think the RNC needs to have lots and lots of change. We, we need to be making a case why we want to be the party of gratitude, not the party of grievance. You know, America um, isn't a tribal war forever. And if you listen to most of the crap that comes out of the RNC, these are a bunch of people obsessed with whatever some random Democrat said that day, and they want to scream about it. But okay, let, if I can, the- Senator, I want to move to the other end of the spectrum. Steve sure. Schmidt, who is the, uh, the leader of the Lincoln Project, has planned, quote, a brutal campaign uh, against companies, trade associations, CEOs that, quote, serve as financiers of the authoritarian movement that attacked the U.S. Capitol. It's a time for choosing. It's America or autocracy. There's going to be a public discussion about it. Of course, Stephen Schmidt of uh, the McCain campaign who selected uh, Sarah Palin to be his vice president. What do you make of the Lincoln Project's uh, sort of anti-Trumpism? Is it opportunism or is it principle? Uh, I I think there's an insane amount of money uh, that's been made by people laundering Republican or formerly Republican brands uh, to raise money from Democrats and for Democratic causes. So I, I don't spend a lot of time on the Lincoln Project, but I think I think a lot of the work they've done is very, very sad, very destructive. Um, but again, I think the more important thing than me complaining about the Lincoln Project is talking about the party of Lincoln and who we want to be. Um, America doesn't work 
if we're going to hate each other. America can't do big things if we just talk about how much we hate each other. I'm the third or fourth most conservative member of the Senate by policy uh, voting record, but I'm just not that partisan because I care more about my neighbors than I care about people in D.C. who live on social media to attack the other party. It's not, it's not very many of Americans who really care about that crap. People think it was a cliche when I quoted Lincoln, we must not be enemies, we must be friends, we must not be enemies, but it's not cliche. It's not cliche. People, people call, call me naive uh, for saying I'm still optimistic about America. Fine, call me naive. Politics has enough cynics. Um, at the end of this rot, we got to love our neighbor. I mean, the, the point of America is about coming together to reaffirm a constitutional system. Why? Is, is the Constitution the end? No, the Constitution is a means. It's Washington's silver frame uh, to get to the golden apple at the middle, which is the communities where we work and where we raise kids and where we worship and where we love. Which is freedom. Where you, where you build stuff, which is freedom from so that freedom to. Government gets us freedom from. Government isn't the end. Government gets us freedom from so we can get to freedom to actually build crap with the people God has called us to live next to and next door to and to break bread with. So I have to close, though, Senator, by asking you about the cycle, which began in 2016 with Cable's wall-to-wall coverage of the president and with James Comey and Andrew McCabe's decision to investigate the president without telling him. It proceeded through uh, Mr. Mueller and the Steele dossier. It's proceeded through a faux impeachment now being debated a real impeachment and TDS enraged pundits on various cable channels talking with uh, complete Trump apologists on various cable channels. There is a lot to go around here. What is your yep. assessment of everything? Uh, so all that you said is true, Hugh. I agree with all of it. And yet we should also recognize that the amount of the number of Americans that are paying attention to the stories that are on cable every day, less than 14 percent. Less than 14% of the American people are watching politics on a daily basis. 86% of our neighbors say, I don't want that crap to be the center of my consciousness. Politics is not meant to be constant horse race substitutes for, for sports, for, for the Buckeyes and the, the Indians and the Browns. I mean, the, the reality is the places where people live, should be, they should do their work by being an engaged citizen for 10 to 30 minutes a day so they can get back to coaching Little League. Like, you're right. The rage crap of lots of MSNBC, the, the sort of capitulation of the New York Times editorial page uh, to the progressive woke mob, it's really gross. But at the end of the day, MSNBC has like, what, 1.8 million viewers? It's like half a percent of America. I mean, so so I, let me go, you're, Senator, you're to the key. True, but we have to be for something before we're just against all that crap. And right now, under Donald Trump, my party hasn't been for very much. It's just been against. My very last question, Senator. Uh, I heard from a lot of callers yesterday. They want to do whataboutism, but that's really uh, an appeal for one standard, not double standards. And every time a double standard is employed, they lose faith in the people employing it. What is your comment to them about one rule, the rule of law? Great, great point. So we should be against violence no matter who's bringing it about. The, the truth of the matter is the, the state, the one thing that it's really fundamentally supposed to do is have a monopoly on violence in the public square to maintain order so Americans can fight out their differences with debates and with persuasion and with entrepreneurship. And so when you think, uh, when, you're an, when we're angry because somebody is employing a double standard on the other side, the answer by us cannot be to say, yeah, well, since they did it, we're also going to have a double standard. It should be to reaffirm the standard, apply it to ourselves, 
and apply it to the other side. But if you believe in a principle, advance the principle. Your principle doesn't collapse just because somebody on the other side is unprincipled. That is well said. And, Senator, I thank you for your time this morning. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, come back often. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.